But whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands to go to hell into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Congregation, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as you can tell just from hearing the reading of our text, congregation, this passage is designed to grab your attention. Uh, Not only does Jesus threaten the most severe punishment for those who would cause one of his little ones to stumble, but he also gives us a vivid picture of the consequence of living and continuing and ultimately dying in unrepentant sin. Three times the Lord Jesus Christ gives a warning about hell, and he provides us with a very vivid description of what it's like. Now, all of this, I will say up front, is designed to grab your attention. The message of this text, then, is loud and it's clear. Jesus loves his little children, and he will take vengeance on his and their enemies. Jesus loves the little children, and he will take vengeance on his and their enemies. As it says in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43, Rejoice, O ye Gentiles, together with his people Israel, for he will avenge the blood of his servants, and he will take vengeance on his enemies. Our God, congregation, is a God of love and mercy and compassion and forgiveness and grace and kindness. But our God is also a God of war and vengeance, and justice, and wrath against all those who would cause one of these little ones to stumble in their faith. Now, this context of our passage really does force us to broaden the application of the warning that Jesus gives in verse 42. If you remember the message from a few weeks ago, I said, I said that when Jesus took up that little child in his arms and put him in the midst of the disciples, he was not using that little child as a model for the disciples to follow. Rather, he was using that little child as an example of someone who is insignificant in the eyes of the world, someone who is way down here on the honor scale. No power, no status. A child like that is lowly, humble, meek, and needy. 
So Jesus says, if you want to be great, don't serve upwards. It's easy to serve rich people because they always just throw you a bone. And now you exalt yourself. You ride on their coattails. Jesus says, if you want to be great, then humble yourself to the extent that you are now able to look down at one of these insignificant ones and pour yourself out in service to them. And so in that instance, if you remember, the message was not about children per se. It was about the entire class of people to which the children of that day and the children of our own day naturally belonged. And Jesus identified himself with these people. Jesus today identifies himself with the lowly and the needy, no matter how low and how needy they might be. So remember, he says, whosoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. Now, when you look at the next section of this passage, and this is what we want to do, we want to keep the whole passage together so we can see the running context one of, the, one of my pet peeves is when we grab a passage of Scripture and we yank it out of context, put it back in the context, let the passage run through. And when we look at the next section of this text, what we see is that Jesus' statement about whosoever receives one of these little children applies to the man that was casting out the demons. It applies to that man. Even though that man was sent by God to do the work of his kingdom, Even though he was given the gift of the Holy Spirit, the text says that he was not received by the disciples. Instead, he was denied and rejected. He was rebuked and turned away. You see, that man didn't have the status of an apostle. He didn't have the reputation of those who were following Jesus in that time. He didn't have a place among the twelve. He was just a random, unidentified servant And for that reason, he was despised, overlooked, and even rejected. John said, teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow us. Can you imagine what was going through that man's mind? I mean, these, he's thinking, are the Lord's chosen apostles This is Peter, James, and John. These are the ones who serve as representatives of Jesus Christ. And they're telling me that I need to stop serving in the name of Jesus Christ. That's what he's thinking. They're telling me that I'm not authorized to do this work in the name of Christ. They're telling me that they're on the inside. Oh, they're part of the truly saved. They're part of the people who walk with Jesus, but as for me, I'm on the outside. I'm on the outside of the kingdom of God, and apparently I'm on the outside of the Christian church. You see, when you keep all of these things in context, the passage is a lot easier to understand. The situation with this man is, in fact, one application of the lesson that Jesus is teaching in the previous section. And also, if you just continue reading all the way through... From this passage now to our text for today, you can see that the whole section, the entire thing, belongs together. It actually belongs as one whole story. This man and his situation now becomes the basis for what Jesus is teaching in our text. In other words, let me make it plain. This man is the little 
believing child that Jesus is referring to. Notice how the passage comes together if you don't rip it apart, but just keep reading it all the way through, beginning with verse 38. After Jesus heard what the disciples did to this man, he responds and he says, do not forbid him, for no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me. For he who is not against us is on our side. For whosoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. But whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. You can see that Jesus is responding to his disciples because they did not understand the Catholicity of the gospel. They thought that if people weren't following their little group, that they somehow weren't saved, that they didn't know Christ, even though this man was able to accomplish things that in the previous context, the disciples were unable to accomplish. They tried to cast that demon out, but they couldn't. And here they see another man who's casting out demons. Therefore, he has the Holy Spirit. And they say to Jesus, we forbade him because he does not follow our little group. They don't understand the Catholicity of the gospel. And when that happens, then they end up rejecting people who truly belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in this warning that Jesus is giving, he provides us with two things to consider. First of all, notice Jesus sees all of his believing people, regardless of their age, as his little children. One of the things that we have to keep in mind here is that when we come to the text of Scripture, we always come to the text with our own presuppositions, our own preconceived notions, our own theological commitments. And here in this passage, it's very easy for us to do that and make a very serious mistake. On the one hand, we might assume that every time the Bible uses the phrase little children, the people in view are always less than 12 years old. And for some of us who just absolutely love our covenant theology, We want that number to go as low as possible. This kid couldn't be more than nine months old or maybe a year and a half max. And that's our covenant theology, isn't it? And we would add to that, of course, that that little child should also be baptized. That little child should also be included in the Lord's Supper. But you know, congregation, that is not the way that Jesus is using the term in this text And it's actually not the way that the Apostle John uses this term in his first epistle. It would seem that this conversation that Jesus is having with the disciples, and in particular with the Apostle John, is having an effect on John's heart and mind. It made a lasting impact the way Jesus referred to believers as his little children. He sees that Jesus considers his believing people as his little children, so John picks up And he uses that very same terminology. Now listen to a couple of examples. He says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you do not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, 
Jesus Christ, the righteous. He says, little children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have already come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And so he says, and now little children, abide in him. And when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Now, of course, on the opposite side of this, there's another presupposition that's oftentimes at play, and it's another presupposition that we absolutely must confront. So often there's an assumption that when the Bible talks about believers in Jesus Christ, it cannot be talking about anyone who is less than two years old. That would be, in terms of this kind of thinking, absolutely impossible. And so anytime we come to the question of baptism, we hear the protest, baptism is for believers only, and children, that is babies, cannot believe. Well, this isn't a sermon about baptism and pedo faith, but just to level the playing field, just to keep us all humble and bring us back to the foot of the cross, this is a point that must be demonstrated briefly before we move on. There is a big difference between the possession of saving faith in Jesus Christ and the profession of it. There's a big difference between being able to have faith in Jesus and being able to articulate that faith before men. And we have to understand that difference. Even though babies don't have the capacity to articulate their faith in Christ, they nevertheless do have the capacity to exercise that faith in Jesus Christ. This is something that the Bible teaches in both Old and New Testaments. In fact, the Bible shows in a number of different passages that infants can trust in God, they can rejoice in Jesus Christ, they can sing praises to the Lord, they can even know the Holy Scriptures from the time of their infancy. For example, in Psalm 22, David is speaking to the Lord and he says, but you are he who took me out of the womb and you made me trust while I was upon my mother's breast. So here, David goes back to the time of his infancy and he says that he was trusting in the Lord our God even while he was upon his mother's breast. In Luke chapter 1, Elizabeth is talking to Mary and she says, As soon as the voice of your salutation sounded in my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. At the announcement of the conception of Jesus Christ, little baby John the Baptist was still in the womb of his mother and he was leaping, not twitching, he was leaping for joy. That's what the text of scripture says. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he quotes Psalm 8. He says, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and nursing infants, you have perfected praise for yourself. In other words, God has ordained that when these little covenant children are crying, they are in part praising God. And he says, those are perfect praises. And finally, 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul says to Timothy, you must continue in the things which you have learned and have been assured of, 
knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from your infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, of course, all of that, and I just rattled those off quickly, is just to show that you and I need to be committed to the word of God above everything else. We need to be committed to God's word no matter what it says, no matter what it happens to teach. When we come to the text of God's word, we cannot just be looking for the proof text that goes with our favorite hobby horse theological position. The Bible is not a list of proof texts that we could just grab and use when we want to. Our job is to learn the word of God. We have to ask what God's word is teaching, and then we have to seek to apply that lesson to our lives. So now, as we look at our passage, there are two things that Jesus wants us to see. The first thing is that he views and sees all of his believing people, yes, regardless of their age, as his little children. The second thing is that he will avenge them against anyone who causes one of these little ones to stumble in their faith. And here, notice the seriousness that our Lord Jesus Christ has about this particular issue. Do you think that Jesus cares about his people? Absolutely. Do you think he is a protector and a defender and the avenger of his people? Listen to what he says. He says, whosoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. That word stumble has to do with scandalizing someone. It has, to, it has to do with causing them to turn away or depart from Jesus Christ, to lose the faith that they had in Christ. He says it would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were cast into the sea. That's major. Jesus says that a man would be better off. He would be better off having a millstone tied around his neck and being cast into the sea. But notice, this is an incomplete comparison. Better off than what? Jesus doesn't finish the comparison. I think it's clear what he has in view. I would say he wants us to fill in the blank for ourselves. It's better to drown in the sea with absolutely no chance of escape than to face the judgment that God will dish out to those who lead believers to stumble in their faith. Now at this point, at this point, a lot of commentators divide the passage. A lot of commentators seem to think that beginning in verse 43, Jesus changes the subject under discussion. As if in verse 42, he says, make sure that you don't make other people sin. And then in verse 43, he switches it up and says, and also make sure that you take care of your own sin as well. And if that's the way that we're supposed to read this passage, that's perfectly fine with me. All the lessons eventually are the same. But the first lesson loses its force if the rest of the text is not attached to it. I would say that there's no need to change the subject. It seems to me that the sin that's in view in verses 43 and following is whatever we might do that makes a believer stumble. In other words, if your hand causes you to sin in this way that I just described, 
then cut it off because it's better for you to enter into life maimed rather than having two hands and be cast into hell, into the fire that shall never be quenched. Or if your foot causes you to sin, that is in the way that I just mentioned, then cut it off because it's better for you to enter life lame rather than having two feet to be cast into hell and into the fire that shall never be quenched. And even if your eye, even if your eye causes you to sin in this way, pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hell. Now, there's a couple of things that we can see from understanding the passage in this way. If we keep it all together, we respect the context, don't rip it apart. It's interesting how the child is up here, the warning is down here, and then the child comes back in. It's just, it's, it's interesting how that works. But there's a couple of things that I want to draw out. First of all, it is in fact very easy for us to cause a believer to stumble. Did you know that? Did you know that it's very easy for you to cause a believer to stumble in his faith? It's very easy. It doesn't take much. You can actually do it quite easily. And you can actually do it in countless different ways. I don't have time to cover all the different ways that you could do this, but consider just a few. If you sin against a fellow believer and you refuse to confess your sins and be reconciled to him, then you can cause him to stumble. Your hypocrisy, your hardness of heart is driving people not to the Lord Jesus Christ, but away from him. Because here you are as a representative of Jesus Christ. You're speaking in his name. You're sinning against a believer and you refuse to confess your sins. Is that the gospel in practice? That's hypocrisy. Also, if you encourage a believer to sin, if you encourage a believer to sin and he gets caught up in a very messy situation, you are causing that person to stumble. You can do that by your words, the bad advice, the worldly advice that you give to people, the careless words that you speak. You could do it also by your own careless example. So if you lead someone into the practice of sin, their stumbling is lying at your door. This is something you'll give an answer for. But also, if you engage with a believer in the act of sin, how about that? If you engage with another believer in the act of sin, you are also causing him to stumble. This can happen in any amount of ways. You can engage in a romantic relationship and you can be intimate with a person who is not your spouse. In that situation, you are sinning and you are causing the other person to sin. In all of these different ways, it's possible to do exactly what the Lord is telling us don't do. And if you think about it, that's why he's being so repetitive. He wants to emphasize this. He wants to punctuate this. He goes from the hand to the foot to the eye, and he could have kept going if he wanted to. Now, this whole illustration is designed to summarize all the possible activities that you could partake in. Now, the second thing that we need to see here is that the punishment for this sort of a thing is very severe. Notice that Jesus is not just talking 
about a timeout. Jesus is not just talking about a fine or a fee that you'll have to pay, but instead he's talking about total and final condemnation in the place of hell. He says that those who cause the little ones who believe in him to stumble are in danger of being cast into hell. And notice, Jesus doesn't soften the blow. You know, I'm up here and I'm thinking, whew, I can only give you guys so much of this. And then I got to sort of bring in the gospel and sort of relieve the tension. Jesus doesn't soften the blow. Instead, he quotes Isaiah 66, verse 24, a total of three times in this text. He says that hell is the place where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. In fact, even when he talks about being cast into the sea, the picture there is exactly the same. The picture is of finality. The picture is one of irrevocability when it comes to the final judgment of Jesus Christ. When Jesus issues that final judgment, it will be irrevocable. You don't get to reverse it. You don't get to appeal it. You don't get to dispute it. In Revelation chapter 18, verse 21, we can see the millstone tied to the permanency of judgment. It says, then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea. And he said, thus with violence, the great city of Babylon shall be thrown down and shall not be found anymore. Now, going back to the question about little children in this text, remember what I said earlier. This is going to help you. These believers that Jesus is concerned about are believers at any age. And what that means is that even though the man who is casting out demons, the man is the primary example in view, we cannot say that he's the only example in view. Remember, part of the context is also to think about what Jesus is doing while he's speaking. And as far as we know, he's still holding that little child in his arms. And he's still speaking with the near demonstrative, these little children. And so while that man is regarded as a child of Jesus Christ, so is this little one that he's holding in his arms. Now I say that because there's a little bit of irony that comes into play here. It's kind of tricky, but you got to see it. There's irony, first of all, in the term that Jesus chose to describe the place of hell. You know, in your translation, it just says hell. But the Greek word is Gehenna. And what's so interesting about this is that the same term is derived from the Hinnom Valley. Now, you remember where the Hinnom Valley was, right? That was the place where all of the people of Israel would take their children to be sacrificed to foreign gods. This was a place that was dedicated to child sacrifice. And these were the apostate people of God. This, this took place under Ahaz and under Manasseh. You could read about that in 2 Kings chapter 16. Even look over to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah is confronting the people for doing this gross and evil thing. Now, later on, we know that King Josiah abolished this practice. He abolished it. He took it out of the way. But when it was taking place, there were countless little children that were sacrificed in that location. Jeremiah chapter 7 and verses 30 and 31. The children of Judah 
have done evil in my sight, says the Lord. They have set their abominations in the house which is called by my name to pollute it, and they have built the high places of Tophet, which is in the valley of the sons of Hinnom, to burn their sons and daughters in the fire, which I did not command, nor did it ever come into my heart. So one of the things that sort of jumps out here is the fact that Josiah, when he uh, instituted his reforms, he turned that whole place, the Hinnom Valley, into a, a garbage dump. In a sense, that was desecration on this false worship. In a sense, he was bringing in a bunch of trash to pollute the place because he was absolutely condemning the practice of child sacrifice. So that became the place, Gehenna, that became the place where all the garbage was burned. And because the garbage was always being dumped there, it was always piling up there, the burning of the garbage actually never stopped. Literally, it just kept on burning. And so Jesus picks up on that imagery because it's perfect for him to describe the kind of torment that unrepentant sinners will be experiencing in hell. He says it's the place where the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. The other thing that sort of jumps out here is that by using this particular term, Jesus is saying that those who cause the little ones to stumble are just like those who sacrificed those little children back in the day. And the irony here lies in the fact that these people will suffer in the very same place where the children of that day suffered. They will be cast into Gehenna. Now, many of you have seen the film Sound of Freedom, and if you haven't seen that movie yet, I would encourage you to do so. Well, in that movie, there is this one line, sort of grips your heart. It's one of the most powerful lines in the entire film. And it's, uh, it's spoken in answer to, to why it was that Tim Ballard became so committed, so passionate about saving these little children who were being sold into the market. And his answer was very simple. It was because God's children are not for sale. God's children are not for sale. That was a very, very powerful line in the movie. And it reminds us, especially from a gospel perspective, that even though God loves all of his believing people, he has a special love for his children. And you know, the truth is that you and I should have also a special love for our covenant children. We should do whatever we can to help and guide and support our fellow believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. But when it comes to the children, congregation, you and I should be especially watchful. We should be especially serious. You and I should love them. We should guard them. We should teach them, instruct them, and protect them by all means necessary. And congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, when we do that, when we do that, we will be putting the words and the sentiment of the Lord Jesus Christ in this text into practice in our lives. And then we will be able to sing with Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods, for he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. Amen.